Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen. Today's lecture is number 35 on the Old Testament given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is 1 Kings chapters 17 through 19, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online. If you prefer to listen, all of Dr. Skousen's Old Testament books can now be found on audible.com. Today we cover chapter 13, The Coming of the Prophet Elijah. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! This chapter 12 is a rough one. The names go in and out as though you're in a rotating door. And um, it's kind of hard to keep track of them, but it's, um, it simplifies itself rather well. Now, were all of you aware that all of the kings can be found listed with the years they reigned over just before the first chapter? Were you aware of that page? The whole chronology of the 4,000 years is at the beginning of your book, right after the introduction and just before chapter 1. So if you kind of get uh, confused, as I do, I have to go back every once in a while because we get several different people by the same name. And some are up north and some are down south. It's a little puzzling. Now I just want to um, very rapidly uh, put together one segment of it so that we will be sure and have it for uh, the future. <clears throat> what was the date of the split? Nine, what was it, 21? Oh, 922. And uh, when were the northern ten tribes carried off? 725? Oh, 721. That's right, 721. See, it's just 201 years apart. If you can remember either date you're in, you can remember it. All right, now Jeroboam then came into power in 922. And, um, and then in due time, after, when he passed away, after he and... He tried to snare Abijah, and, and uh, Abijah got a special blessing from the Lord and was able to defeat his army. Why, uh, it wasn't very long before Jeroboam had died. And somebody predicted that uh, all of his descendants would be wiped out. Who was that? Who was it? Uh, what? Who was it said that, all his, that his little boy would die and all his descendants would be wiped out because of his apostasy? Ahijah. And what was special about this prophet, as far as Jeroboam was concerned? That's the one that set him up in the first place, wasn't it? The Tories new cloak all up and gave him ten pieces and says, you're going to get ten tribes, and, and Rehoboam has only got one. That's a hijack. So he said this is going to happen to him, and it happened with his son Nadab. Nadab, who ruled only two years, and he was leading a battle against the Philistines, and all of a sudden one of his commanders... Uh, organized a military mutiny and killed him and then rushed down to the capital. Where was the capital at this time? It had moved from Shechem. Where would Jeroboam taken it? Tirzah. Tirzah. And uh, it's sort of like so. And uh, we'll make this big. And let's say it's right up here. There's Shechem and there's Tirzah. And there's Sebastia of today, but called Samaria in those days. And Samaria is the headquarters from here on for all the northern ten tribes. 
so we don't forget Samaria. Shechem, Tirzah, and Samaria. Okay, then Nadab was killed, and all the descendants of Jeroboam were killed by whom? What's his name? Yeah, Beasha. And that's a new dynasty. What's a dynasty mean? That's another what? Yeah, remember the word family. A dynasty is a family. Is Baasha any relation to them? No, new dynasty. Okay. Then he has a son. What's his name? Did that come right fast? Elah. Elah, okay, Elah. Elah. All right, now that's a dynasty. Along comes the prophet and says, Baasha, you're just as wicked as they were before you. The condemnation of God is on you. And this is what's going to happen to you if you don't repent. What did he say was going to happen? Same thing. Same thing. So Elah uh, is, is reigning at the time that they get into that same war in the same place with the same people. Gibbethon, they're fighting in the same town. They're fighting against Philistines. The only difference is Nadab was in the other war. Elah isn't. Where's Elah? He's at home in his cups. It says drinking himself drunk, and that's the only way that you drink can drink if you keep going is to drink yourself drunk. So um, one of the generals, not the top man, but one of the generals thought he'd organize a little military coup. It's kind of a way of life, you know. What was his name? Zimri. Zimri. You got another dynasty? All right. Does he make himself king? He tried. He tried. He really did. And he lasted how long? One week. One week. That's the shortest dynasty in the history of the Bible. And... Uh, what hadn't he uh, contemplated? What had he kind of overlooked? The fact that uh, he was not number one man in the army. Who was number one man? Amri. Now we got the head of a new dynasty. So Amri moves in with the army. That the, if there's going to be a change in the king, it's going to be Amri. So they move in. They lay siege on the city of Tirzah. And uh, after one week... What did Zimri finally decide to do? Commit suicide. And he did it by what? Went into the palace and burned it down over his head. He'll show him. So Zimri passed away, and we had Omri, a new dynasty coming up. Who's his son? Ahab. We got a new dynasty? Yeah, it's going to last clear down to Jehu. Now we're going to have about four or five kings there. And then we're going to hit Jehu. So that all happened, you see, in just a few years. And that's what confuses you in chapter 12. Boy, they just go in and out like a swinging door. And, and you've got a couple of prophets coming in every once in a while. And you, you just feel like you're getting the one-two. But the Jews and the Baptists know all these people. Mormons don't. But real Bible scholars who don't have to keep up with the Doctrine and Covenants, Book of Mormon, a home, family, home evenings, family, home teaching, and so forth and so forth. They get these people so they know them like the palms of their hands. Now, the Lord expects us to do that, too. We've really neglected our scriptures. So we're going to make these people come alive. And when we talk about Beasha, the example of Beasha, which is what Jeremiah later talks about, we know who Beasha is. Okay? All right. Now, um... These people succeeded in getting a certain kind of prosperity going, but it was strictly a heathen prosperity. Asa, who was the uh, over on the other side, we had uh, Rehoboam. This is only one um, dynasty. Rehoboam, who was his son? 
only lasted five years and went up and tried to convert Jeroboam? Abijah, your book says M. Now that's a misprint. Uh, I just noticed it today. We'll have to get that correct. And then Abijah had a son. Who is he? Asa. And he reigned for 41 years. That's the big one. He lasted as long as all these kings put together, practically. Does that help a little bit? Okay, now try and keep that in your mind because otherwise you get terribly confused by this one chapter. You're not going to have trouble with the others. But this is a no man's land. That's what I called it in the, in the opening. You should have had to have written it. Man, I took all the commentaries and I took all the Bible books and they were, they were more confusing than the Bible. So I went back to the Bible and I digested and I pulled it and wrenched it and wrote it and rewrote it. And I tried to keep it in parallel so that you'd get uh, up to a certain logical point uh, with one and then we'd bounce over before we got too far away and pick up Judah and bring it up about the same position and push the other one down and so forth. That may seem confusing to you, but it's much more confusing if you go all the way with the northern ten tribes and then go back and go all the way with Judah. It's very difficult to have any kind of correlation. So I tried to do the best I could to make it easy for you. But it still isn't easy. You have to sweat a little bit about it. Uh, well, we think uh, about the time of Ezra. In fact, Ezra may have done a lot of it. See, Ezra came back around 450 um, B.C. And he found that the temple had been rebuilt, but the people had uh, lost all their scriptures. Had practically nothing to read out of. So they'd go to temple and talk about nothing. So he came over and started teaching the gospel, and they went into a panic. They said, we've been violating all these commandments. We didn't know these were commandments of God. Well, he said, then we're going to meet every Sabbath day and we're going to read the law. And I'll put it all together for you. So he assembled all the scriptures he'd brought from. He wasn't a prophet at all. He didn't claim to be. Uh, he was just a real good scholar. So he took all the scriptures that he could get over in Babylon, which had been scattered around, and any fragments that they had, and put it together in the Old Testament. That's what it is. And then you had Nehemiah come along after him. And we have the book of Nehemiah. And then we have uh, Malachi, and that's all. Everything else is before then. So he assembled everything except Nehemiah and Malachi. And thank goodness we had him do it. So um, we don't know whether he wrote these together because he keeps saying, you see, all of the details are found in the book of Nathan and uh, other prophets that he names. Then we don't have any of those original records. All we got is the sum summary, the historical summary. In Samuel, first and second Kings, first and second Chronicles. Those are the historical books. Okay, now Zimri only lasted a week. Omri took over. Omri immediately allied himself with the Phoenicians. Now, the Phoenicians had changed their national characteristics over the years. They started out as Hamitic peoples. By this time, we're not sure they are Hamitic. They may or may not have been. The word Phoenician means dark. It's a Greek word, and it means dark. These are the Lebanese. Today, they're Arabs, you see. They're not even the originals. They're just Arabs today, but brilliant Arabs, great businessmen, as I've told you, great bargainers. And um, the Phoenicians of about this period were not only the greatest uh, mariners in existence, they're the ones that would be, build these uh, three-deck ships that would go all around the Mediterranean. By 600 B.C., they're going out of the Mediterranean, up around France, up toward England, down the coast of Africa. 600 B.C., they try to go clear around Africa. They make it. 
The Egyptians say, then we can do it too. They made it all the way around Africa. One of the Phoenicians' boats got caught somewhere below the Canary Islands where all the winds blow west. They got caught in that wind, blew them clear to Brazil. And they wrote a rock in, in um, Phoenician in which they said, uh, we're one of 13 boats, if I remember the number correctly. Uh, we got uh, storm, uh, in a storm that pulled us away from the rest of the boats. We don't know where we are, uh, but we're going to get try to get back to the other land that's east. And uh, you see, they got in exactly the same wind current that Columbus got into. Uh, the Portuguese have been trying to come uh, west for nearly um, 50 years by launching from the Azores. Well, all the winds blow east at the Azores level. That's the way to come home. And so uh, Columbus made a mistake. He thought that Japan, based on what Marco Polo said, was probably a little further south. So he launched from the Canary Islands. And there's a terrible hurricane, and he almost got caught in it, but the widow of the governor of the island, Canary Islands liked Columbus and got him to stay over two weeks. And that got him by the hurricanes. He didn't know that, but it did. Got him by the hurricanes. But when he got out onto that wind current, it blew him on his fastest trip into the Bahamas. Well, these Phoenicians did the same thing a little further south and were blown right into the, uh, the part of Brazil that's halfway out in the Atlantic. See, when you're in South America on the west coast, you're further east than the east coast of the United States. So Brazil is way out in the Atlantic. And, uh, and they made on this, they wrote on this rock who they were and how they got uh, lost, etc. So the stone was found a little over 100 years ago. And uh, there was a scholar, a curator from uh, Brazil who knew a little bit about ancient languages. Um, couldn't interpret it completely, but thought that it was a very ancient stone. And so he copied it off as carefully as he could, scientifically as he could. And when the scholars got to working on it, saw what it said, they really laughed. Boy, somebody sure pulled a fake. And so the stone was lost. And then so was the transcription or the copying of it, till it showed up in an auction in New Jersey about 1967. And Brandeis University got hold of it, made a very careful study of it. Lo and behold, it is authentic. The peculiar characterizations on it are 600 BC characterizations that uh, were subsequently changed. And uh, the interpretation of it was very readily made. And so now nobody challenges it anymore. Phoenicians made Brazil in 600 BC, about the time Lehi was landing on the west coast somewhere in Central or South America. And if you'd like a copy of that whole thing, you can get it at the Department of Archaeology over here. Okay, now, the, the, the Phoenicians then were, were very wealthy mariners. And um, uh, to, for Omri to tie up with them was considered to be real sharp. But the king of the Phoenicians wasn't like King Hiram, who had helped David and who had helped Solomon. See, we're just a little bit further down the trail, and already we've got the whole dynasty of Hiram wiped out. And instead we have on the throne the most depraved bunch of characters, and the man who is presently king is named, did that come to mind offhand, Ethbaal? And uh, what's notable about him? He's the king of the Phoenicians. What's notable about him? What religion? Ashtoreth. 
the worship of um, um, it's sex worship of a kind in that case female sex worship and uh, how did he get to be king he murdered who did he murder his brother and he has a, a beautiful daughter the princess of the house of this murderer what's her name Jezebel boy just like the song says Jezebel and she was everything the song says so these two houses got sufficiently close that you have the princess of Phoenicia betrothed to the crown prince of the northern ten tribes and what's the crown prince's name that's Ahab Ahab and Jezebel what a team and once they were betrothed she put a ring in his nose and kept it there all the rest of their married life till the dogs ate her up and um, I guess a little before that why the um, poor Ahab got killed but in any event he went all the way for her he became the high priest of male sex worship and she became the high priestess of female sex worship and she had 400 priests and uh, they were all emasculated and um, uh, depraved degenerate uh, fem uh, female uh, person impersonators what they were and they had all been operated on there must have been a crude affair back in those days and the um, the others the 450 priests of Ahab uh, they were they were the Baal priests so this is just about as depraved as you can get and if there was anything that would send uh, Jezebel uh, that would just make her see blood and fire it was what what did she hate above everything priest of Jehovah she hated Jehovah worship with all of its code of uh, ethics and morality and chastity and all this terrible uh, restriction of uh, women's liberation <laughs> so uh, what did she do to the priests what did she do to all the priests as many as she could find a terrible blood purge of all the members of the priesthood all killed <coughs> But there was one good soul, courageous, put his uh, life in, in his hand almost. He saved a few. How many did he save? He saved a hundred. Fifty at a time he put where? In caves. What did he feed them from? Yeah, the king's pantry. That was great. I, that, that part, the good guys and the bad guys, that was pretty good. And so he kept all the priests going. Did Elijah know that he had them all hit up? Did he know about it? No, he thought he was all alone, absolutely alone. He didn't even think there was any members of the church, not even one. He didn't find anybody helping him. So all of this is happening. Where, where's Elijah? We don't know. Uh, all of a sudden, he appears on the scene uh, um, out of nowhere. And here he is, the president of the church, got all the keys of authority. We have no background uh, on him at all. He's a Tishbite, that's all we can say. And so before we mention him, I just wanted to say one or two of the things that I wanted to share with you about the closing part of chapter 12 so that you would understand something. This is the first time it's ever appeared in a church book. And it's so ugly and so depraved and so terrible, I guess we can understand why. But it isn't even in the commentaries. You've got to go into some obscure secular sources to find out 
why God was not cruel and was not arbitrary or depraved when he did what he did to some of the people in the Old Testament. Reading the Old Testament has destroyed the faith of many people. It turned Stalin into an atheist. When he went to study to be a priest, the Old Testament turned him into an atheist. He said, I could never believe in a God that would do that kind, those kind of things. Well, we didn't have any better literature in the church because the Old Testament was terribly neglected. We only had real two authorities on the Old Testament, and they lived back in the days of the prophet Joseph. And they had a special gift of understanding the Old Testament. Those were the two Pratt brothers. We had no books on the Old Testament from the Pratt brothers until now. And I kept hoping somebody would write this series, and uh, they didn't, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just kind of take a look. Why, well, it was so exciting I couldn't stop. So I spent about 25 years getting out the three books on the Old Testament. And now more and more books are beginning to come out. I opened up about all oh, three or 400 doors where I just took a peek hoping that some graduate student would say, we gotta really find out about that. Because I didn't have the time to go, through all, go into all the rooms. I just opened the door so we could say, uh-oh, there's a great area that needs probing. And then I moved on along. Or I could, this is one of them in which we discovered, uh, Josephus gave me my tip, but I would find um, all of these terrible things being done um, uh, by these people. I got concerned, for example, about the Lord's concern over groves. I always liked groves. The Lord doesn't like groves. And I can't understand why he doesn't like groves, because they're nice, I always thought. And he gets really excited about groves. I mean, people, uh, that's a capital crime to have groves. So I, I knew we did not understand groves. So then I found out that the Greeks used the, uh, the groves for their, uh, their orgies. And gradually I began fanning out. A little bit here and a little bit there over a period of several years. And I said to myself, now I know that when God destroyed men, women, and children in some of these instances, it was justified. I know it was justified. Don't understand why. But God can't do anything unjust and remain God. So I've got to catch our Heavenly Father's point of view. So that's when I started searching. What is there about a grove that makes a loving, merciful Heavenly Father just absolutely go into uh, uh, almost a rage of righteous indignation? And I found out what went on in them, and I got, I got excited too. Imagine sending your children into, into a society, like the Greeks, for example. They take a two-year-old child and start preparing him for um, homosexuality and uh, all kinds of depravity. Terrible. If, when you think of your own children, sweet, innocent spirits, going down into that kind of a, an environment. So the Lord told Daniel, he said, that kingdom's going to rise and fall like that. Guess how long the... Um, the golden age of Greece lasted. Any of you know offhand? Where are my history majors? Pericles. How long? Forty years. That's all. She went up, and she went down and basked in her reflected glory. She only lasted forty years. Uh, the real glory of Rome wasn't much more than that. Most of the rest of it was a, a degeneration down from her moment of glory. Well, I just wanted you to try and catch the Lord's point of view. 
And Josephus was the one that tipped me off that it was Nimrod at a time when the fullness of the gospel was on the earth that said, I've got to set up something that will get the people over into my church. Now, he's a grandson of Ham, you see. He doesn't have the priesthood. He's not allowed to have the priesthood. So he wants to set up competition. He's a big fellow. He's a great warrior. So he decides to be a mighty hunter against the Lord, Josephus says. So he built up himself up a new church, and he had an interesting approach. He said, you know, God's in his heavens, uh, but he's a long ways away. Was that true? Is that true? Physically, is God a long ways away? I'll say he is. But we're right that close to him otherwise. But physically, he's a long ways away. And he said, furthermore, he's very busy. Is that true? Yeah, he's very busy. So if you want somebody to take care of you, you better look at those of us that, are, that care. We care for you. <laughs> and we're going to force you to do what's good for you, whether you like it or not. We love you. Well, that's the spirit of the Nimrods. Now he said, I've got to get them joining my church. And so he had this speech which was directed against whom? Who was his competitor? You had a terrific competition here going on between, uh, between Nimrod and a very famous person who is your descendant, your ancestor, I mean. Who is he? Did you miss that on page 321? Who did you say it was? Shem. Nimrod says, depart from the religion of Shem and cleave unto the institutes of Nimrod. And what were the institutes of Nimrod? One of them was astrology. What was astrology designed to do? Destroy what? Free agency. You blame it on the stars. Now we blame it on our uh, childhood. Freud has us all mixed up on that. He has to blame it on our childhood. But um, anything to get away from free agency. And you see, Watson came along um, uh, with his behavioralist psychology. You psych majors want to be aware of this. And Watson says, you are definitely a victim of inheritance and environment. You don't control your destiny unless we can change your environment, which we do control, which we can control. We can't change human nature because human nature is a reaction to environment within the framework of what they've inherited. There's no such thing as free will. The most you can do is consciously watch yourself do it. You call that free will. No, it's not free will. You see yourself doing it and say, well, I chose to do that. No, you're compelled to do that. That's behavioralism. So we force people to live in good houses, you see, and we force people to enjoy an environment of dependency so that they find they are loved and they are cared for, then they'll be good people. Now we've sublimated it here on this campus. I see people that call themselves behavioralists. They're not behavioralists at all. Watson would disown them they believe in an intelligence and in free will and in self-determination which Watson said is scientifically impossible so we're right back where astrology was where you find yourself in, engaging in all kinds of things and you say isn't that terrible that I'd inherit something like that like that I got those proclivities from my ancestors God said you uh, got a lot of proclivities from your ancestors but you just chose to do the stupid thing you just did and there's no freedom from consequences so that's kind of interesting so first of all he said God's a long ways off so who do you worship you worship whoever's close and that's Nimrod you see so did where did the image image worshiping of images start according to Josephus whose image was the first one to be in a temple Nimrod. 
says, I just want, to, to, I want you to be reminded of your benefactor. And it wasn't long for they're kissing the toe, you see, and as they went by the image, etc. That's all it takes. And they knew it just represented Nimrod, but the next thing you know, why they pray to the image and up to Nimrod. It's just one of those things, adoration. So now you've got men above God. Now he wanted to make it popular, so he goes for fertility worship. And what represents fertility? Bull calves, rams, snakes, all that's fertility worship. So people say, what, what, what's such a great deal about God being unhappy about worshiping a golden calf? I mean, it's a silly thing to do, but uh, why get so excited about worshiping a golden calf? That's why you get excited. Bible itself says they stripped themselves naked, got drunk. Sure, it's the old heathen fertility worship. And I think I've mentioned to you before, when we go on our tour to the Holy Land, we'll stop off at Beirut, the capital of Lebanon or Phoenicia, and um, we go over the range of mountains, the Lebanese mountains, uh, where you find the Phoenicians, uh, the, the beautiful pines that are so famous, the uh, forests of Lebanon. And we go down into the beautiful Becca Valley, which used to be called Heliopolis, or the Valley of the Sun, City of the Sun. And there we show you the, the three ancient heathen temples. The first one you go into, where you make your oblations to the god that's being worshipped, the heathen god, the image is up there. And to show your adoration to him, Nimrod, Jupiter, whoever it is, you give to the priests a nice donation. And a few calves and sheep and so forth. And when you are accepted and, the, and all of the temple rites are duplicated, washing, anointing, uh, it's amazing how Lucifer uh, copied many aspects of the temple. Even uh, the, the, the rooms are in the proper order going into the Holy of Holies, just like the tabernacle. It's kind of fantastic. And the altar is there. When we take our people down to Egypt, I take them into the altar room and it's kind of dark, and I get them in and out fast because the walls are just covered with obscenities. Then you go to the next temple, which is right next door, and that's the temple of Bacchus, where you get sacramentally drunk. And then you take one of the Vestal Virgins, quote and unquote, and go over to the third temple, which is dedicated to Venus, Astarte, some goddess of love, and then sacramental fornication is required of the individual with someone other than a wife or husband. So it must be with either one of the Vestal Virgins or with somebody other than a wife or husband. That's called sacramental fornication. And then a donation is made to that, the goddess of that temple. I want to tell you, it just enraged our Heavenly Father. He said, I am a God of passion, and I have feelings, I have love, and there are some things I despise. And when the cup overflows, it really overflows. And when you do that to my spirit children, what they're doing down there, then I, I wipe out the whole culture. Because even the children take pride in it when they grow up and remember what their parents did. I have to have the whole thing rooted out like an abscess and transferred in the spirit world in order to get rid of it. So he told Joshua and uh, the Israelites to root it out. Did they root it out? No. And they ended up with their own children being perverted and depraved. And then they'd have Moloch, this great metal god, the belly of which was, was filled with fire. The arms were, empty, were, were hollow, and they were shaped like this. And they would heat the uh, 
iron um, statue until it was just cherry red, hot. And then they'd take their babies and put in those arms and roast them, kill them. Now you can understand why the heavens wept. Why, why the Lord said, now I want you to send that whole culture, I want you to root it right out. I want all those people sent back over into the spirit world. Now you have to understand that to catch the Lord's point of view because he is not allowed to do anything unjust and remain God. Alma 42. So whenever he does anything, it always has to be within a frame of reference that can be justified. Any question on that doctrine? Only one passage, of, one, one chapter in the whole canon of scripture that teaches this concept. That's it. And then it's quoted in other places, but that's where it's taught. Any question now about heathen worship? If I told you to give me three characteristics of heathen worship, could you do it? Okay. And so it's under these circumstances, this is what Jezebel and Ahab are guilty of. Two of you back there with questions. Go ahead. Yes. The, the priests of Ashtoreth um, uh, were, were um, homosexuals. The... Um, the priests of Baal or Ahab, their, their role was that of male, what we would call male prostitutes. That was that side of the worship. See, it was a dual, a dual worship. Now, see, you, you might be amazed to know that this went right on down through the Dark Ages. This infiltrated the Christian churches, and um, during the period of apostasy, the churches actually ran the brothels and so forth. This thing has a terrible history, and Satan has used this over and over. And the great concern of the brethren today is that now your generation is being hit with this same thing. And we're moving into the Sodom and Gomorrah epic now. And the Supreme Court has wiped out all of the protection that we originally had, not against private morals, because you can't keep individuals from doing things. But we did have uh, laws against public immorality and the promotion of this evil. That's all been wiped out now, practically all of it. And so a, a form of depravity has now descended on this generation that's very much like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, that's enough of that ugly picture. Now, I just want to say a word here about Elijah because when you realize what the environment was and how terrible it was, then you begin to become sympathetic with the Lord's point of view. And you begin to understand uh, why he is so... Uh, anxious that something be done to curb this, to change it, and get it back in the right direction. So he sends Elijah, the president of the church, and the last custodian of all of the keys. For 900 years, there won't be anybody on the earth with all the keys. And so this is a great man. And I suppose around 900 B.C., a little sooner than that, you and I all sat up there in the pre-existence and sat in council, and uh, maybe some of you did, and and got to hear the, the presidency of the priesthood, Father Adams, say, now, I have this role that um, I need to uh, ordain someone to. Uh, he didn't call him a hit-and-run prophet, but that's what he meant. This is going to be a real rough assignment. Now, Elijah, my son, um, I think you're big enough for it. I want you to try it. Would you accept it? And we probably stood there and listened to a description of how tough it was going to be and saw him say... Um, all right, I'll, I think I can make it. I'll try. You can make it, my son. See, now that's the way it's organized beyond the veil. It wasn't just an accident that he was born a Tishbite and that that sort. That was all organized before he ever came. 
and he came into this situation where all his companions seemed to be murdered all around him. He rushes into the summer palace in Jezreel, which is up above here, actually, as you know, and uh, uh, the, summer, the summer palace was looking out on that lovely valley of Jezreel, and he came into the summer palace so fast, I mean, for a prophet, all the rest of them were supposed to be killed for a prophet to dare to come in front of Jezebel and Ahab and say, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain in all this land for these years except I command it. He's putting a curse on the land. Uh, and shock, I mean the audacity of it all. And he goes out between the pillars. Ahab comes to his senses, get that man. They go out there. He was a fast runner, I'll tell you. When he would gird up his robe and run, you couldn't catch Elijah. And he ended up at the brook Cherith with um, birds, ravens to feed him morning and night, bread, a little meat, and he had the water. And he lived like a Bedouin on a bare subsistence level of existence until, of course, the, the water ran dry. And then the Lord said, now, I, I, I'd move from here if I were you. I have another place over near Sidon of all places where the famine was still terrible. And that's where he went to live with that widow woman. And we had the, you've heard that story since you were little children. And so we kind of pick up the story from there next time. Because we have quite a bit we want to tell you about Elijah next time.